Good day and welcome to the Cincy Slangin' Bearcat Podcast. I'm Coomer, not joined by Hummer today, who got far too drunk at a Jets-Eagles game. What an upset. But I am joined by an esteemed guest, one who has been on the podcast several times before, a fan favorite, some might say. Justin Williams of The Athletic is back on the Cincy Slangin' Podcast. Welcome back, sir. Uh, thank you. I appreciate you having me. I'm sorry Hummer couldn't be here. I'm uh, I'm going with a, a seltzer, Kroger brand seltzer, so I was able to make it tonight, but good for you, Hummer. I hope you're having fun. Myself, I'm going with the pumpkin spiced uh, Stoke coffee mm. that Raj Bennett of Men in Blazers got me hooked on a few months ago. So uh, not personally. Personally or just no, uh... no, yeah, just a personal wreck from, from Raj Bennett. Kuma, you need to try this uh, stoke coffee. I think that was Australian. That was, that was um, close, pretty good. Close. We're, we'll we'll try again later. But Justin, things have uh, well, there's a lot to go. There's a lot going on in Cincinnati Bearcat land, and I'm curious and excited to get all of your thoughts on the matter. You are someone who comes with a reputation of being level-headed and well-sourced and rational with your information, opinions, and. Uh, and and all of that jazz. Uh, I do not have that reputation, and so you'll be a good counterbalance to to the uh, conversation today. But I did think it'd be worth noting your, your your role at the athletics seems to have shifted slightly this year, where you are maybe covering the Big Twelve Conference at large rather than just focusing on the Bearcats program. So maybe you give me more insight into what you've been doing so far this college football season. What it might look the rest of the season and basketball season as well. Yeah, definitely a little bit of a, a shift in role. Um, part of that is just kind of the the way the company's changing. Part of that is the the way our our coverage is is changing, and and then also part of it's kind of the obviously the change going on um, at Cincinnati. So I'm still here in Cincinnati. I am doing a lot more um, Big Twelve coverage and also just some you know general uh, national coverage. A lot lot more focus on features, which um, I love, and is kind of how I got started in the industry. Um, I I do my best to kind of stay uh, attuned to Cincinnati as as well as possible. I, I unfortunately can't be around uh, as much or write about them as much. Um, hopefully that changes um, because I think with success would come plenty more opportunities uh, to do that. So I'm, um, you know, as a beat writer, you try not to root for for Cincinnati, but I guess in some way it'd be it'd be nice um, if things do uh, go well for them because then I can can do a little more coverage, especially being here locally. Uh, but yeah, so just a little bit of a shift. Um, I, I know it's probably, I've certainly heard it's not something that uh, all Bearcats fans are super excited about or, or want to hear. Um, and, and I understand that, but um, just uh, excited about some of the new role and opportunities that I've, that I've had so far. Yeah. It's exciting to get to read your, your writings on other programs. We get to learn a bit about what's happening around the, the rest of the big 12 I've enjoyed it. I miss uh, your day-to-day coverage, but I'm reading through X.com yesterday. Uh, Bearcats struggling against an Iowa State team that, frankly, I would have I would have thought coming into the game, and I think Vegas had it the same way, that the Bearcats are, are playing a game at home, homecoming, that they should win, and that was certainly not the case. Um, the takes coming from the Justin Williams timeline, a little hotter, a little more sizzle. <laughs> Yeah, a little more, you know, this one, the line that jumped out to me was way too many mistakes by Cincinnati in all three phases, flat and unprepared, coming off a bye, brutal. And that, that 
you know, it's not a hot take. It's a pretty, um, I guess it's, you know, it's tepid in terms of what was actually happening on the field, but it does seem like you, you seem to be in agreement that coming off a three game losing streak by week in hand opportunity to sort of regroup, rally the troops, put a plan in place to beat a, you know, not necessarily a superior Iowa state team. Did it catch you off guard? Like it did the fan base as to how comprehensively Iowa state beat the Bearcats on Saturday. Yeah. I, I just expected a, a better performance for sure because of all the, you know, the elements that we just talked about. They're at home. They're coming off an idle week actually had a, a bonus day, right? They played that BYU game on a Friday. Um, I, you know, I don't know if you want to say must win, but if you're kind of looking at the schedule and, and the way the rest of the season's going to go, like if you're charting wins or games that you feel more confident in, this is one of them. You know, I, I don't think anyone uh, would say that there's a huge gap in talent between Cincinnati and Iowa State. I think you could argue, you know, that if there's any teams in the Big 12, Cincinnati might have come in more talented than of like the existing members you could probably put iowa state on that list especially with some of the gambling suspension issues and, and all those those kind of things that they had entering the season um and so to have all of those variables or, or you know i guess just um you know facts coming into the game and then they play the way that they did it's one thing if you get your ass kicked by oklahoma or texas or even like kansas state or something like that um i, I don't think that iowa state is is a team that anyone expected they would have that type of game and performance again against especially with all those you know other circumstances we talked about and so yeah you know as, as me i was i was watching i am watching with a little bit of a different eye i guess because it's less of a beat day-to-day eye but certainly if you're a fan watching like you have every reason to be um pretty pretty frustrated and upset about the performance that they gave saturday emory jones caught most of the flack for his performance and it seems to have been a steady regression for him personally since the eku game to start the season uh, the passing game has no bite. We're missing the the few opportunities we do get downfield. And, and besides, you know, some occasional throws out to the flat, there just doesn't seem to be much of a much of a passing game to speak of for the Cincinnati Bearcats. What what is surprising you most so far this season when it comes to the offensive execution of the Bearcats? Yeah, I mean. Honestly, I'm I'm not sure. I'm I'm totally surprised. I I guess I didn't think that they would struggle this much to score. Um, you know, you look at that Oklahoma game. They certainly didn't get blown off the field by Oklahoma. They they held them to 20 points, which against that Oklahoma team, I think is impressive defensively. They still only scored six points. You know, they struggled again in the red zone, which is a problem that they had against Miami. Um, so, but this is still a team that is returning one starter from a season ago, bunch of new pieces in terms of transfers and, and things like that, completely new staff, completely new system. So I never really expected this team to be like a stellar offensive team entering the season. I realize Satterfield's an offensive coach, but again, this is, you know, he's in some hands in some ways playing the hand that he's dealt because he didn't have a full off season. You're kind of piecing together uh, the, the lineup that you do have. Uh, what's disappointing is like when you do, you know, draw up those plays that work like the, the, the D Wiggins shot on, on the first series um, they hit them against EKU. And, you know, I, I get it. EKU is not as good as uh, Iowa state, but when the guys running wide open down the field, it doesn't really matter. Right. Like wide open passes are the same against EKU as they, as they are against Iowa state or they should be. Um, so that's disappointing that some of those, you know, shots that they hit on early in the season, even, you know, that pit game uh, hit a couple shots down the field and, and those seem to have completely fallen off. 
outside of Emory running, they have no run game. I think that's disappointing, especially for, um, I think, a an offensive scheme and system that that's going to be a big focal point for, for Satterfield. And to start the season, you know, they did run much better. That seems to completely have, have fallen off, whether that's teams reacting to what they saw on film or you know, something else, just not clicking with the offense. I'm not sure. Um, but as disappointing as the performance for Cincinnati was Saturday against Iowa state, I think they're probably not as bad as they looked just in general against that Iowa state team. And I'm not totally surprised at how much they're struggling overall because I think that's what most people expected or projected coming into the season. And then maybe, you know, especially that pit win, maybe it kind of got everybody a little too excited a little too quickly. But this was a team coming into the year that, you know, I thought would be would, would over have to overperform to get to bowl eligibility. And it's, it's, you know, six games into the season, it's looking that way now. Like, the, if they get to bowl eligibility at this point, they're going to have to pull a couple upsets and, and win a couple big games. It's probably a four to five win team. Um, and, and so I think we're just seeing, you know, again, they're probably not as good as they looked at the start of the year. They're probably not as bad as they looked right now. But I think we're just, we're getting into what this team is going to look like this season for a whole bunch of reasons we can talk about and should talk about. Uh, one of them being Emory Jones has, has really struggled at quarterback. Um, and he's a six-year player on his third school, and I think there was some hope that he could come in and be in a different system, and and um, that would cater to him, and hopefully he would perform better. And six games into the season, I think we're learning that he's. We probably knew what he was coming into the season, and, and and we're seeing a lot of that. I think a lot of hope was put into the idea that Cunningham turned, sorry, not Cunningham, uh, Satterfield turned Cunningham into a an outstanding quarterback at Louisville, and Emory Jones. You know, was stuck at a, at a Florida program that was in disarray. Herm Edwards was a, was a disaster at Arizona State, and so you can sort of point to those programs being the reason that this quarterback wasn't having the success that his talent would justify. Honestly, it's a similar narrative to what Bearcat fans would tell themselves about Scott Satterfield. You know, the reason you know he didn't achieve the the highs that his scheme and and football knowledge would dictate because he was stuck at an, at a Louisville program. That's, that's been in disarray for, for quite a while now, obviously the way the season has shaken out so far for Emory, that narrative is, has been silenced. And then you look at what, what at Brom is doing at Louisville. And I think that narrative is quieting down as well. Um, there's still a lot of noise out there and a lot of, a lot of fans clamoring for the coach Satterfield to make the decision to bench Emory and bring in Brady Lichtenberg. And I ask you as someone who got to cover the Bearcats super closely for the last few seasons, still following them sort of, you know, on the periphery. Um, is that something that's a realistic option? I'm, certainly it's a realistic option. I guess the question would be. Maybe does... I should phrase it differently. Is it is it something that based on Brady Lichtenberg's skill set would be, would be a reasonable decision for Scott Satterfield? Um, that's a good question. I think it might be worth seeing more so than what playing in the last four minutes of the game or whatever they brought him in uh, Saturday against Iowa State. Give him a shot to get out there and do it. I think it's also worth remembering this was a guy who is this his third season? Um, I think I think he's a redshirt sophomore, right? Maybe maybe redshirt junior. Pretty sure redshirt sophomore. You know, he he was recruited when they were an AAC team. Now that's not to say he can't play at a at a power five level, but I don't think that was you know he didn't have a, a bunch of power five offers um, at, as a recruit. He was a really early commitment to Cincinnati, actually. So 
whether he can go in in the Big 12 and, and win them some games, I don't know. You know, I, I'm not in practice every day. Nobody uh, on the outside is is in practice every day. Uh, he has some talent. I think he's probably a little bit undersized, but, you know, he, he can spin it. He can throw the ball. But that's also not totally what they want this offensive system to, to be either. He's more of a, a pocket passer. And that's, you know, I think good coaches can adjust to their personnel. And so if they feel like Brady Lichtenberg gives them the best chance to win or they want to see if Brady Lichtenberg gives them the best chance to win, then maybe you adjust and you, and you try to be a little bit more of a, of a pocket passing team while he's in there. I, I think it's totally fair, especially, you know, if, if you want to say, all right, Baylor, another home game, another, uh, you know, maybe evenly matched teams in terms of talent next week, uh, a, a game that you would look at the schedule and feel like they should have a decent chance to win. If you want to maybe give Emory one more chance and, and say like, all right, you know, you're on a shorter leash now or, you know, wh- however you want to frame that. And then we might have to, you know, if the struggles continue, we might have to look at Lichty or something like that. Sure. If you just want to say, you know, all right, we're throwing Lichty in. I think if you were going to do that, probably this past game would have been the the game to do that with the the long extended layoff and things like that. Uh, But whenever you do it, I think it's totally fair to put Lichtenberg in there, but I also think coaches have a pretty good sense. You know, let's be completely honest. We saw this with, you know, Ben Bryant and Evan Prater. Everyone wanted Evan Prater. And I think the, certainly the coaches and even, you know, a lot of us in the media following closely knew that, Evan Prater would not give Cincinnati a better chance to win than, than Ben Bryant. I don't know that that's the case in this situation, but I think the coaches would have a pretty good sense of if we put Brady Lichtenberg in, do we have a better chance to win? Um, and if that answer is no, then I don't necessarily see the point of like just making a change for change sake. Um, but I guess you also, in some respects, don't know in, until you give that, that player a shot. So a, a long way of saying, sure, give Brady Lichtenberg a shot at some point, but also understand that, you know, if you're seeing him in practice and you're evaluating him every day and you don't feel like he's going to give you a better chance to win than Emery, um, then it, it's not worth it to just like throw him out there to make a point. It feels like we're on our third consecutive year, maybe fourth consecutive year of this conversation occurring in some way, shape or form. You know, if you flash back to 2020, there were people clamoring for Ben Bryant to get in over Des Ritter mm-hmm. and it ended up looking very, very silly. And you're right. Last season, um, I I think I was naively someone clamoring for Evan Prater, like, Jesus, give me something different. And it was it was largely a similar narrative to that you would have right now. Hey, we're not going anywhere big this season. We're not going to achieve the types of heights that we thought could be possible coming into the year, even with losing the talented class we did to the to the NFL. But it was the idea was. Prater's the guy who's going to be taking over the reins next year or beyond. And so let's see what we've got and figure out if we need to to revamp the pipeline. I think what I've learned over these years is that the coaches who know football better than me, better than any fan watching, they're seeing it every single day. And if they had a reason to put in a backup quarterback who was outperforming the starter, they would generally make that call because they want to also win games. They want to they want the pressure off their back of having fans say, what the hell was John Cunningham thinking with this hire? You know, like, I think if it was an obvious layup, he would do it. Um, the few things and whispers I've heard is that there's not necessarily a reason talent wise to just throw in Lichtenberg and assume it's going to be better than Emery. And if you're Scott Satterfield, you put your name on Emery Jones. Like this is the guy you brought in, um, decided basically in spring ball that he was going to be the starting quarterback. It gave Ben Bryant the opportunity to seek a different opportunity at Northwestern. And so throwing in the towel after six games would essentially be admitting that you did, did make a pretty bad mistake with who you brought in to be the starting quarterback year one. 
Yeah, and I don't know how much that factors into it. Maybe it does a little bit because I also think you're talking about, you know, uh, he didn't have a full transfer cycle. I, I'm sure if, he, you know, if everything was perfect in his situation, I don't know that Emory Jones would have necessarily been like the, the quarterback that that he was bringing in if he had a full offseason or anything like that. I, again, I, I don't know. It's, it's a ridiculous hypothetical because it doesn't matter. But I do think you're right. You know, I think something that a lot of fans look at is, all right, Emory's not coming back. It's a six year. This team is obviously struggling, not going anywhere. Play the young guys t- to get reps. I, I, there is um, there is sense in that, like that. That's not a completely ridiculous thing to suggest. And I do think if if kind of the the way they're playing right now continues, I wouldn't be surprised if they do put Brady Drogosh in. You know, a little bit more towards the end of the season. Uh, again, a very young player, a true freshman. You don't want to make him lose his confidence, but just to like give him a chance to go out there and and get some some live reps. Uh, but I, I think the thing that fans sometimes lose sight of there is like it's still really important to try and win, whether it's for internal morale, especially now in the transfer portal era where, you know, if, if things really go in the dumps, like there's even maybe less reason for some of those guys who might be on the fence towards the end of the season of staying or going uh, to, to stay. So if they're looking at it with, you know, six games left, still at least the mathematical possibility to get to bowl eligibility and all that kind of stuff for all those reasons. If you feel like Emory still gives you the best chance to win against Baylor or Oklahoma state or whoever, then yeah, I think it'd be kind of ridiculous to to not try and do that. Now, again, we get towards the end of the season, two or three games left. If bowl eligibility isn't a possibility that I think is when it makes more sense, you know, Lichtenberg, Brady Drogosh. If you don't feel like those guys give you a better chance to win than Emory right now, by that point, it might make sense. But with Baylor, you know, coming into Cincinnati on Saturday, you know, I think you got to p- still play the quarterback you feel like gives you the best chance to win, even if that comes with with a lot of faults. It's the best of best of the options you got. That's kind of what it feels like right now with Emory Jones. Um, and I, I know Scott Satterfield. You hear it in press conferences, like post game press conferences. He's he's really like honing in on. We missed that throw. We missed that throw to D Wiggins, and it. it He's almost harping on it as if it, it was the the game changing play, and it all was downhill from there. But I think he's what he's really pointing to is it's those are the small margins we're dealing with, and if you can just hit the few open shots we get, because we don't have wide receivers uh, running open open all over the field. This isn't like Tyler Scott, Trey Tucker streaking down the field wide open, breaking breaking distance from defenders. It seems like we're we generally have tight windows. The few opportunities we have where they're wide open downfield, we have to hit them. And right now, Emory Jones has not shown an ability to do that. And so I think fans are right to question it. But I also I I, I tend to I've learned my lesson. I'm defaulting to the coaches know the quarterback that's going to give the team the best shot to win. And right now, apparently, that's Emory Jones. And it means that heading into next season, 24-25, that's got to be a priority for the staff is if, if these backups aren't good enough to outplay Emory Jones right now, um, obviously Drogosh is so young that he's, you would expect some development there, but we have to ask ourselves, how aggressive do we have to be in the portal to bring, bring in an option that can, that can really be a viable option to win football games in the big 12. Yeah, I think you're totally right. I think there's a big difference between talking about how things go this season and the rest of this season, and then spinning it forward to this off season and, and next year, I think you can have a lot more, um, lofty or, or just, you know, higher expectations in terms of things they can potentially do recruiting wise portal wise this offseason as opposed to to right now i think right now this is a team that is is going to struggle um a lot 
this season for a ton of reasons. And again, that that doesn't excuse the way they played Saturday. Um, yeah, I, I think that was, you know, as much as things are against them, you expect a lot more. You expect to see at least some some more preparation or fight. Uh, but e- even if that was the case, you know, I, I still think this is a team that was going to really have to to struggle to get to five or six wins. And I think that's kind of being reflected. You made a good point, though, you know, about the, the deep ball. And he did talk about that in the postgame press conference. <clears throat> Excuse me. We saw it's similar to what he said about the running backs uh, earlier in the week, which I thought was interesting. This team is this offense is not good enough to score on 10, 12, 14 play drives consistently. Like if they're going to put up points, they're going to have to do it on hitting some big shots and, um, and, you know, scoring quickly on a few drives. And so when you have those opportunities, whether it's a hole opens and a running back, you know, has a chance to go 75 yards and instead goes, 50 or 60 and gets caught or you have a wide receiver streaking wide open and you have a chance to hit a 60 70 yard touchdown and it goes incomplete it it makes it that much more noticeable and that much more painful for this team because they're going to struggle a lot to string together long uh, consistent scoring draws absolutely well without hummer here i've done a bad job of mixing in some fun questions that was something we did last time you were on was was lightning the mood it was it was you know, arguably a little heavy t- Taylor Swift, but maybe we were simply ahead of the curve because now we see what's happened in the NFL and she's absolutely taken over. We may get there, but I wanted to start with with Cincy Light, uh, the the creation uh, of Ryan Geist, Cincy Reigns, uh, obviously our mutual friend Brian Fox, heavily involved. How do you rate it? Have you tried it? Do you enjoy it? Is your, is it your new logger of choice? Give me Justin Williams' opinion on the Cincy Light logger. I have tried it. It is very good. I'm impressed. I think uh, if anyone were a you know consistent um, domestic lager drinker, that it's it's pretty easy to to tell a difference um, in in quality and standard of of something like Cincy Light. And uh, as has been mentioned a lot, it's it's priced the same, right? So um, I'm not like a huge sit back on a Saturday and like kick back six or seven, uh, you know, beers, whether they're uh, domestic loggers or otherwise. Uh, but I I've had it multiple times. I've had it in a can, I've had it on draft. Um, and, and I was, I was pretty impressed. I, I think that's been reflected like as much as people want to get excited about it. And they we're seeing this a lot where, um, collectives are, are having their own beer or, or schools are having their own beer or whatever. Um, Cincinnati was pretty early on that trend. Uh, and as much as, you know, Cincinnati fans do a good job of kind of rallying and supporting their own, if this beer sucked, like the, the excitement uh, for it would have, and the demand for it would have been uh, far less intense. So I think the amount you see people buying it and drinking it is a reflection uh, that that's a good beer. And I think that shows that it was probably wise to go with uh, like a brewery like Ryan Geist that, you know, has a little bit of a track record. I I will be honest. I have no sense of like, what are the, the sheer dollars that it's, you know, contributed from, from an NIL standpoint. Um but I think it makes a lot of sense in a city like Cincinnati to pair wanting to raise money for NIL with fans drinking beer. Um, and fortunately for them, it seems like they've they've brewed a pretty good one. They have. I have to ask, when's the last time you shotgunned a beer? Oh, gosh. I don't think I've – I can't remember doing one since college. <laughs> All right. Um, I've certainly – yeah, you know, I've I've certainly like 
probably been over i've definitely been overserved since college or like you know tried to relive glory days and, and realized pretty quickly that that doesn't work but yeah shotgunning I, I, you know i don't know that's i i know my scouting report pretty well and i could probably even count on one hand the amount of beers i've 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 shotgun in my life that's just not where my my strengths lie yeah, I was. I, I'm trying to think if there's a way to get Justin Williams to shotgun a Cincy light. Um, I'm going to kick some ideas around in my brain. This, it's probably a, a long shot. The way you phrased being overserved since college was an interesting way to talk about being hammered since college. I really, it, it almost, it kind of reminded me of Scott Satterfield talking about the running backs just not being fast enough. Like you know, you're not really you're not putting it on this, the the scheme, the play calling, the the lack of touchdowns has nothing to do with that. It has to do with no, no, they overserved me. They just they didn't they didn't stop uh, sending me beers. I would say like um, you know, I've I'm I'm in my mid 30s. I have three kids. Weddings, like weddings are where you really like all right, this is, you know, a lot of times the kids aren't with you. Um, you know, you, you don't have to worry about getting to and from anywhere. Weddings is it's where un- like all right, yeah. you relive your married glory couples, days. married couples with kids are underrated in terms of their debauchery at weddings. That is their opportunity to cut loose. Usually the grandparents have taken the kids for the night. Right. They're going to have no responsibility. They're shutting down the dance floor and taking full advantage of the open bar. But outside of that, it's just like, um, you know, you're, I'm really pushing it and I'm going to be paying for it, uh, you know, a lot longer if, if I'm like really getting after it, um, that often, so I, I I certainly like I don't want to come I'm not a prude I know how to have a good time I'm gonna have fun I think I think people that have been out with me would know that but I I tend to like have a good sense of my limits too. I like it. I uh, I want to just throw out some some rankings right mm-hmm. now for the Cincinnati Bearcats offense and it's all leading to a kind of a question to to get a sense of whether or not this might be an option somewhere down the line. Um. Right now, the red zones in red zone. Sorry, the Bearcats in red zone efficiency are 97th in the country. In red zone touchdown efficiency, 128th in the country. And what? 133, 135? I think the rankings I looked at, 130 out of 130. Okay. Uh, Third down percentage, 54th. Um, Turnover margin, 103rd. Penalty yardage per game, 98th. Not all of these are, are necessarily connected in the same way, but I, I set the table for the Bearcats are clearly struggling offensively from an execution standpoint. The offense is headed by the head coach of the football team, Scott Satterfield, and he is renowned for calling his own plays. Do you think there is a world where you could envision Scott Satterfield ever handing over the play calling duties for the Bearcats? Look, if Jimbo Fisher hands over play calling duties, any anyone can hand, can hand over play calling duties. Um, so certainly there would be a world. Now, what we're in year six, seven of Jimbo at, at Texas A and M. Um, a, a lot of money, a lot of investment, and as much pressure as Scott Satterfield's facing right now, Jimbo's is yeah, infinitely more. Right. So I would say I don't necessarily see it happening anytime soon. Um, and again, I do think you have to use the caveat that this is, you know, he's he had a first year piece together uh, offense, you know, didn't hasn't had a full recruiting cycle, transfer cycle, all that. 
However, I will say some of the criticisms about Scott Satterfield's offense coming out of Louisville were, you know, struggling in the red zone that, you know, his teams could move the ball between the twenties, but struggled in the red zone. That is 116th in the country last season. Yeah. And, and again, that, that has, that has been a, a criticism against him and and it has shown up, you know, certainly in a noticeable way this season. And then the other one was that like, he struggled in those big games, the rivalry games, you know, I, I'm not going to compare like Miami, Ohio to Louisville, Kentucky, or, you know, even like Louisville Clemson or something like that. But for those to be the, the criticisms and then to come out, especially in that Miami game itself and struggle in the red zone and lose a rivalry game that you have no business, you know, losing whatsoever uh, under any circumstance honestly that that was concerning um you know to kind of see those um criticisms fulfilled pretty early so it's going to be something that he you know i'm sure he is certainly aware of it he's talked about it it's you know it's one of those things that heading into next season you're right you got to get a better quarterback and you're going to have to improve on some of these areas where you're struggling and i would say that red zone and honestly just scoring in general general is is kind of chief among those yeah. Yeah. Nail on the head. I don't really have a, I don't want to add on it. I I've belabored the point that this team is atrocious in the red zone. And it was why I took so much. Um, I was kind of taken aback at the comments about the running backs because the, the reality was this team has so many bigger issues at play than how fast Corey Kiner can run and whether or not he took the 50 yard touch, the 50 yard run from 50 to 80, you know, like it's, Stop belaboring this idea of an 80-yard run that doesn't happen that frequently and instead be a leader and, and demonstrate the fact that you understand there's plenty of onus you have in making sure this offense executes better and scores touchdowns at a higher clip, especially when they get down inside the 20. Um, what is, what's the vibe? You know, you, Maybe you're not talking to as many people, but I'm sure you have tons of relationships in the department. What's the vibe right now in the athletic department about these first six games and maybe just the first, you know, however many months of the Scott Satterfield era. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't know if you would extend it to the whole um, tenure because I do think there was um, optimism and excitement, you know, just coming into the season in general for for a changeover. I, I will say, you know, some of this is talking to people within the program. Honestly, some of it, you know, now in my position, you're talking to a lot of people around the league and in, in, in different places and things like that. It's, you know, I, I would say it's down right now. It's it's tough, and that's you know to be expected. Um, the, the Miami loss, like we talked about, is really bad. Um, I don't think, you know, it's hard to feel too bad about the the Oklahoma loss or even the the BYU loss. Personally, I thought that was their toughest stretch of the schedule, you know, coming into the season is home against Oklahoma to open the Big 12 on the road on a short week at BYU. It's a, a tough place to play. So the fact that they lost those games, there were things that were disappointing about them. But, you know, I, I don't know that there was anything that you like take away as um overly uh you know disappointing or concerning um but yeah the, i mean you know the, the, the iowa state that was that was a really bad performance that was a really bad loss i don't want it to, to be like you know sounding uh, alarm bells or anything like that you, you know one of the things i wrote about a lot back, back when i was writing about uh, cincinnati on a day-to-day basis more so in the off season i kept harping on the difference between scott satterfield and luke fickle and you know, how diametrically opposed those two were not in a good way or a bad way, just in terms of their, um, you know, football coaching style in terms of their culture. And it, it was hard to see in the off season, how will that complete wholesale, wholesale change in culture look on the field? 
but I kept writing about it and I kept mentioning it. And some people I think, you know, probably uh, got tired of it, but you know, whatever you thought about the, the, the Luke fickle tenure or his departure, or whatever, the team had a very clear and defined identity and, and Luke fickle had a very clear and defined culture. I think Scott Satterfield will have that too. I think he does have that. I think it's just completely different and opposite from what Luke fickle had. And it's almost impossible to change that in a 10 month period when you have so many players who were recruited under the previous staff, um, when you're bringing in so many new first year guys through the transfer portal. And so I do think what we're seeing is there's probably a lot of players that are on this roster who might be really talented, who might be even some of the most talented players on the roster. They're just not a fit in this system. They're not a fit in this culture. And so maybe they stayed around this year when you know they, they were considering whether to transfer or not. I expect we'll probably see a decent amount of those guys transfer after the season. And I don't think that should be taken as, well, they gave Scott Satterfield a, a, a chance and, you know, they, they didn't like him or that, you know, that they feel like it's a sinking ship or anything like that. I just think it's, it, this is a big culture change. And that was something that John Cunningham and the program knew when they hired Scott Satterfield, but it's something that is going to take some time and it's going to take, you know, this coaching staff getting in the players that fit not only with their scheme, but also their culture. And so part of, I think, the struggles that we're seeing and maybe some of the disconnect with, you know, whether it's like the Sammy Anderson tweets after the game or, you know, the the running back comments midweek, I think that's more a product of less like, you know, oh, things are just complete disarray or a mess and more that we're in the middle of a very significant culture change and seeing some of the the lumps and growing pains of that process. It's harder to institute a culture change when the the losing streak runs up to four. You know, there's going to be more tension. There's going to be more angst in the locker room because it's harder to to see the vision when the results aren't following necessarily. I think a lot of your articles over the summer. I I do want to add like a a perfect example of that. I don't know if people remember. I think it was in spring. Deshaun Pace made some you know, comments about like, oh, this staff is great that they, they really love us, you know, or something like that, you know, clearly taking a little bit of a shot at the, the previous coaching staff that left. I think it was just an emotional comment more than anything, but you go from that to like him being, you know, suspended for the Oklahoma game. And it, it just goes to show that, you know, again, he came back, Scott Satterfield said, we're going to welcome back with open arms. He played um, uh, against, BYU and then you know obviously played uh Saturday but it just shows that like you're right once you get into some adversity and some struggles and some losing um it, it has more of a fe- an effect than you know running out there in spring or or you know getting acclimated with a new coach new roster and things like that this is something that's going to take take a little bit of time to make that transition from a Luke Fickle led program to a Scott Satterfield program didn't a lot of those articles touch on the fact that Satterfield was known for practicing less? Like these guys weren't on the field as much and practices were shorter than they were under Luke Fickle. And and a lot of it sounded in the spirit of work smarter, not harder necessarily, and and being efficient and and getting getting work done in the amount of time that you need, not necessarily just trying to count the number of hours you're putting in. All of that sounds great. I think where where the struggles come in is when you are. 103rd in turnover margin when the penalties are sloppy and starting to add up and you're one of the worst teams in the country in in yards penalized and you do have these types of red zone struggles people are going to naturally ask the question what is happening like are we putting enough time are we working smarter or are we not putting the focus and it does scott satterfield have the ability to look inward and figure out where his shortcomings might be 
and what is actually needed from him, whether it be delegation or tweaks to his style of player, whatever the case may be, does he, the, the, he have the ability to make those adjustments? Is there any precedent throughout his career of seeing him sort of adjust on the fly and, and change his approach, approach to, to react to talent on a roster or results that are happening on the field? Do you, is there any precedent for that with Satterfield? It's a good question. I think it's fair. Um, to the first part, I would say that was definitely like it, it's it's a, there's a difference in style. Um, you can say practicing less. You know, I think they would say that they practice with more pace or maybe you know just more efficiently in in the way they do their things on on a day to day process. To me, the biggest difference, and I think maybe one that we're seeing show up on the field, is you know. Fickle is mega intense. He has a, an edge to him. He has that on the field as a coach. He has that just kind of off the field as a coach. Again, culture, locker room. Um, and I think you saw that reflected in the style and persona of a lot of players that, that they recruited. Scott Satterfield, a lot more laid back, especially off off the field. You know, I think on the field, all, all coaches are pretty intense that they, they want to win. You certainly see him get fiery. Um, but off the field, in the, in the offices, in the meetings, in the locker room, he's a little bit more laid back. Uh, I think you early on you saw some positives to that, maybe some guys who were like leaning in and, and um, appreciating that and responding really well to that. Um, but then again, you know, maybe when you lose or when things don't exactly go your way, maybe that can turn on you a little bit or it just doesn't work out as well. So, yeah, you know, I honestly, I think this week will be a good, you know, showcase of, you know, what adjustments do they make? Because again, as much as um, you know, they, they might struggle and lose. I, I think you can still expect a better, uh, more prepared, more inspired performance than, than what you saw to them for the Iowa State. So I'm very interested to see how they come out and play against Baylor again at home, uh, again with your back against the wall, even a little bit more. You know, knowing that you can't come out and have that type of performance, I think that'll tell a lot about Scott Satterfield and the coaching staff as a whole and how they handled this week. To what you said about Louisville, you know, when he came in he inherited a totally different situation at Louisville. He was taking over for the second run of Bobby Petrino and that was a dumpster fire and he got, you know, Petrino got fired and they really had to kind of come in and just fix things. And it was either seven or five or eight and four. Like I believe his first year was his best year there. And I think that might've been a situation where Scott Satterfield's personality benefited that transition a little bit better than this one. You know, this was not like a coach that got fired in, in Luke Fickle. You know, obviously, I think there would have been some struggles and some growing pains had Luke Fickle stayed uh, this season. But I think it would look a little bit, certainly more cohesive and um, um, just better talent-wise, continuity-wise, had he stayed this year. Mm-hmm. And I, so I don't know that maybe the, the, the benefits of Scott Satterfield maybe showed up a little bit quicker or a little bit more immediate in that Louisville situation, him taking over than maybe they did in this situation. Mm-hmm. And again, that's not to make a long-term projection of, of whether it'll work or not. Um, but I think you saw like, okay, maybe Scott Satterfield was like the perfect fit for what Louisville needed at that time. Um, and I do think, you know, that was in the, he also, I think the second year was COVID. So there was a, a bunch of kind of transition and changes that had to happen with that. Um, But again, I just keep coming back to the fact that I think the culture shift from Fickle to Satterfield is so significant, and it's going to take some time, both in terms of scheme, personnel, on-the-field player stuff, but also just off-field personality culture stuff for that change to really, you know, bed in the way that Satterfield wants it to. And right now, I think we're seeing 
you know, some of those struggles to get to that point. Yeah. There's no doubt the culture change is massive. There's no doubt that it's going to take, you know, you can judge things based on the six games right now and we can make assessments and decide whether or not we think he's doing a, a good job, a bad job. Is he exceeding expectations or coming short of expectations? You know, I, I think it's pretty clear two and four right now, four game losing streak. And looking at some of the, the teams we've played, it seems like we are falling short from the product standpoint. Um, this isn't going as well in year one as I'm sure Scott Satterfield wants it to go or John Cunningham wanted it, wanted it to go. doesn't mean he won't have opportunities to right the ship. But I, I also don't think as a fan base, uh, you know, I, I don't like the, the gatekeeping of, you know, you just you can't judge it right now. Don't judge it. Well, he's coaching and we're trying to win games and we're playing in the Big 12 and it's and it's his job to get the best possible results. And I don't think anyone who's watching these games can say that we're doing that at this point. And it'll be interesting to see his ability to adapt and change and evolve and bring in other, other mindsets or ideas to change over time because the greatest coaches are doing that and have done that. And, and Saban, we're seeing a little bit of, of a dip in Alabama's play in, in the past couple of years, as minor as it may be. We would take that dip all day, every day. <laughs> um, but he was bringing in guys like, like Lane Kiffin, who's kind of reinventing offense for Alabama, and they're changing how they approach the game. And I think – a lot of the best coaches are doing that and you can't just get hung up on this is the way I do things. And these are what my plays are. And, and for things to get better this year, I'm just hoping and praying that we're going to connect on some 80 yard touchdowns. Cause if that's what the plan is, it, we're going to lose every game for the rest of the season. We have to, you got to do something else to improve in these other areas that are more controllable and have to have to do more with execution and not, um, you know, a magical speed burst from a running back that doesn't exist right now. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's true. You kind of mentioned it. my my thing, especially you know, as a beat writer, but but even now, like I try not to tell fans how to feel. So if fans want to be enraged and you know calling for Scott Satterfield to be fired, okay, you can do that. I think that's very <laughs> unrealistic, um, and that's not going to happen. But like that's your prerogative as a fan. Shots at Homer. <laughs> but I also don't expect any fan of Cincinnati football to have watched that game Saturday and just you know come away being like, well, you know, it's okay, it's his first year, um, you know, he, he hasn't had a, 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 a chance of full off season, or he hasn't had his scheme or staff or, or personnel in place and to just be okay with it because that's not the way this works either. So, you know, I think I'm looking at it from like an evaluation standpoint that I think we're going to learn a lot about him and his culture here the rest of the season and how he handles that. Um, but from like an expectation standpoint, I'm much more interested to see how does he handle this this offseason from a recruiting standpoint, from a talent um, or from a transfer portal standpoint um, and just you know, kind of further getting into his system, his culture and all those things. But, you know, that doesn't mean that you just, you know, be OK with as a fan with performances like they, they put on the field just the other day. I want to pick your brain about the basketball program for a few minutes before sure. I do that. Favorite scary movie? What scary movie are you recommending to people this Hall Halloween season? I, I love uh, the Halloween, like the Michael Myers series. Um, I don't I, w I don't watch a ton of scary movies. That's probably because my wife doesn't like them. So like it's me watching them by myself. So it's usually like, you know, October this time of year when they're just on and um, when, you know, randomly and I'm flipping through and see it. But I always try and make a point to to watch the Michael Myers, but I, I can't even say like the newest, most recent scary movie that I've, that I've seen. Most of my um, experience would have probably gone back a few years. 
the movie that messed me up the most that I've watched in the past three three years or so would have been Midsummer. Okay, so I haven't seen that. I, that was you just see things that you can't unsee, and uh, rem- it stays it stays with you. I re- like I never what is it The Conjuring? That's a pretty big like more recent series, right? Like I don't think yes. I've seen any of those. I think I saw the Hereditary. First. Have you seen Hereditary by chance? No. Okay, well, there's a couple. I gotta, I gotta be completely honest. Like I've seen, I could probably count on both hands the amount of new movies I've seen just in in the past few years. Uh, movies have, as uh, work and parenthood have increased, movies have been one of the things that have just um, fallen off. Uh, what about the Barbenheimer craze? Did you get, did you get some Barbie <laughs> or Oppenheimer action in? I, I, have, I have unfortunately have not seen either one of those. I would oh. like to. My wife. You are saw not the exaggerating. Bar- you missed no. the Barbenheimer craze. My wife saw Barbie um, and liked it, and I I would like to watch both of them at some point. I um, a lot of my movie viewing is on on planes, honestly. Like when I'm traveling and stuff for work, I try and keep up on television. Even then, I'm I'm falling way behind. But movies have have taken a big hit. Like I I legitimately can't remember the last movie, new movie I saw in a movie theater. And I'm trying to even think of like the most recent. I've definitely seen a handful of like, you know, new movies in the past couple of years, but it's, it's a short list. People would be appalled. Yeah. we got to work on that. we got to get Justin some more free time. You gotta, you gotta be able to watch some movies, lay back, turn the brain off a little bit. Are you at least binge watching a TV show or something? Is there something you're putting on in the background? Yeah, I'll try and watch the, but especially this time of year, like I like football. So like if I have, okay. you know, some free time in the evening, especially now there's like action on Tuesday nights and stuff like that. Like I'm, you know, even if it's not something I'm actively watching for work, I'll probably more likely to to throw that on than to, uh, than to put on a movie or something like that. Yeah. You and Sam Elliott, I think are the two, uh, the same vibe in terms of the sh- consuming it all five, six days a week. All right. I'm going to ask you a quick question. That's a one word answer. So I can get to the second part of my question. So Wes Miller entering his first season in the big 12, third season at the helm of the Cincinnati Bearcats basketball program. Expectations are certainly a lot higher this season, but folks know there is a huge variable an elephant in the room of sorts. Has there been a decision made that you know about on the waivers? One word answer. No. Okay. That leads me to the next part of my question. We all know we can't we can't really assess or or talk about what this team could potentially accomplish without knowing whether or not Aziz Bandego and Jamil Reynolds are going to be playing basketball for the Cincinnati Bearcats this coming season. The front line could go in two extreme ways. Without them, you have Victor Lockin, Odio Guama, and Sage Tolentino. Um, you could you know, potentially throw in Josh Reed, but essentially, if you throw in anyone else after that, you're throwing in wings who would be posing as fours, essentially, in that situation. With them, all of a sudden, you've got a lineup that features essentially three seven-footers, plus Odio Guama, plus Sage Tolentino, who's essentially been pushed out of the lineup at that point and is going to either redshirt um, and, and probably decide his future from there on because it's just it's too crowded in the front court. What I want to ask you is, Wes Miller obviously took a significant risk in recruiting Reynolds and Bandego together because both of them are are needing to get a, a waiver granted by the NCAA to play basketball this coming season. And it does seem pretty clear the NCAA does not want to grant those waivers. And so getting them granted is probably a tall order. And I suspect it's not a surprise that that's the case to anybody involved. 
And so what I wanted to ask you is, as Wes Miller is recruiting these players and making the decision to essentially go all in, I want the talent and and I'll take the risk. Who's consulting him during that process? Is he talking to the administration about these players in particular, whether or not he should be going after them, whether or not we should be allocating the resources to them, which could in itself could be an opportunity cost. Could he be like, would, would we have the athletic director, John Cunningham or other people in his ear telling him whether or not he should in fact go after these players based on the likelihood they get a waiver? That's there's a lot, a lot of, a lot to answer there. Yeah. I would say, Wes is a smart guy. He knows how this works. He he understands that if if you're trying, you know, if these are second time transfers that aren't graduate transfers, that it was going to be a process to try and get these waivers. In terms of like asking other people, I'm sure he did. The problem there is, you know, I don't know that anyone really knew for sure because I think a lot of people would look at it and say, well, the NCA is toothless. You know, if you if you really fight on it or you have all your ducks in a row, they're they're going to cave. And I think there was a lot of people who just thought like. The NCAA doesn't have the balls to blanket deny all of these second time transfers. And at least so far it's turned out like maybe they do because what, I think it's like 12 or 14% or something of, of, you know, all of these, maybe that's football and basketball. Um, these second time transfers that have gotten uh, approved. So I, I think maybe there's some people that thought or hoped the NCAA would be more lenient. And it turns out they haven't been. Uh, I also just think this is a product of, you know, Wes Miller knows what he wants for his system. Now, and also to be fair, he recruited Jamil Rounds before, I think even before Aziz was in the transfer portal, if I remember the the timeline correctly. Correct. Um, Correct. So, you know, I, I know he really likes Jamil Reynolds um, and, and I know he was, you know, that was a player that once he was in the portal, they wanted to go after, you know, maybe if, if you're, you know, if he's able to see like, Oh, actually I'm going to have a chance at a guy like Aziz down the road, maybe that would have changed who they went after the first time around. But, you know, you see this in the type of caliber player that Wes has recruited since he's been at Cincinnati. Um, he, he doesn't, um, he doesn't make a lot of concessions when it comes to the the type of talent and the type of players that he wants. He goes after the guys that he thinks are best, even if it's a player like Isaiah Collier or Jace Richardson or somebody who, you know, who ends up, he ends up missing out on like, he's, he's not one that's going to settle for less talent um, or, you know, maybe a, a piece that doesn't fit as well just because he's afraid he won't get him or he's afraid he won't get a, tr- uh, get a waiver or something like that. So in this case, I think he feels very strongly that uh, Jamil Reynolds and Aziz are good fits for his system and what, and for his program and what he wants to do. And I think that was more what he was thinking about. And again, also kind of the order that had happened. You know, I, I think if, if Aziz had come in first and they were able to get him, then maybe you go to a player that you know is going to be a one-time transfer. Um, or, you know, if Aziz didn't come in and they have Jamil, then maybe you go after another big, you know, similar situation where it's, it's someone that uh, they know could play right away. But I also think, this is something I've I've learned a lot more in the industry. Like coaches are confident, right? You you know, you know when fans you see a coach take a job and you're like, why would a coach leave this you know perfectly comfortable, easy job to to go take that job? Well, it's because they think they're going to win there. Because every coach thinks you know if I go here and I have this opportunity and these resources, I'm going to win. Um, and I think maybe this is a smaller scale of like no, you know these guys are going to be good for our system. We're going to do everything right. We have the best people working on this, and, and we're going to get these waivers approved. And Maybe in the end it, it does work out that way for one or both of them, or maybe it doesn't. But I don't think from a talent fit standpoint, Wes is going to regret 
the players he went after. Um, if neither of them get that waiver approved, I do think the the front court's in a little bit of trouble. Um, but you know, whether he would then go back and redo it, I don't know. Uh, whether he would admit that, I don't know. We're not to that point yet. Uh, but I think from a talent, a talent and fit standpoint, he's pretty happy with the players that he brought in. And now it's just hoping that he can get them on the floor this year. It might be a good look into West Miller's just mentality a little bit. Cause I think your point on the order is nail on the head stuff. Reynolds, you know, if, if Bandego to me, this is just my personal opinion. Bandego is a good enough player that he's worth the risk to see if you can get the waiver. Because if you get the waiver, he's transforming your defense and he's just changing how the complexion of what your team looks like entirely. Um, your ability to, to stop shots at the rim, discourage rim activity for your opponent is, is game changing stuff. And so to me, he's worth the risk. Reynolds, I think it's less clear if he is. And, you know, there's a, a lot of information out there about his success since coming to UC at, at getting more fit. He's a, he's a monster factors, factory success story already. Um, and he hasn't even played a, played a possession of basketball yet for Cincinnati. But I do wonder with true serum, if West Miller would say, yeah, um, if, if Bandego came first, we, we don't go after Reynolds and we try and find more of a sure thing, someone who we know is going to play basketball for us in 23-24 versus, versus what, what happened in reality. Because honestly, I think the mentality piece of this is all gas, no breaks, and, and a healthy dose of arrogance, right? And, and maybe in a good way, where he's just saying, we already have Reynolds. I'm not sure if he'll play for us. I don't know if he'll get the waiver. I'm still going after Bandego and he might not play basketball either, but I want to just, I want to put my chips all in and see what happens. And and if it breaks my way, we've got crazy hype, crazy expectations, as opposed to if they don't break my way, I'm going to face a lot of heat for probably not having a roster that's constructed in a healthy enough way, uh, balanced across post uh, post positions and, and wing positions. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. And, you know, just, the, uh, kind of another version of what you just talked about. So, you know, he really liked Jamil Reynolds. They they played against him. He played well against Cincinnati. And I think, you know, Wes probably felt, hey, we get this guy in here. I have Mike Rayfelt, um, who we can help him get in shape. Uh, and with that talent and, you know, getting him in shape, I, I think he'll be a really good fit. Okay, great. He's in the fold. Then a guy like Aziz pops in the portal. Like, Aziz was a tough recruitment. He had a bunch of interest and a bunch of options. And so, you know, at some point you're kind of like, all right, well, we're going to see what we can get. And then at some point you realize like, oh, we, we legitimately have a chance here to, to land this kid. And so then it becomes, right, do we keep pursuing this and get a player that we think is a potential game-changing center and front court player? Or do we let it go because we're not sure if he'd get a waiver and we need somebody? And I think if you're a coach, especially a coach like Wes Miller, it's very hard for him to say – no, I'm not, I'm not going to make a run at getting this player that I just, you know, first of all, he killed Cincinnati in the NIT, like they saw it up close, which is a player that I think is is a game-changing type talent, uh, especially on defense, but both sides of the floor, and go with a more sure thing. That I don't think that's in, in Wes Miller's personality, and, and you're right, maybe if the order, if he could redo it or do it, if it were different, it would have changed, but I think the way it played out, he understood the risks, and I think you know, what he thought was, I want a player like Aziz on my roster, even with the risks that come with it. Yeah. And I think as a fan base, it's just being aware of that, right? This is the, this is the risk. He, this is his comfort level in terms of the risk he was willing to take. 
there's a level of responsibility for that. He reaps the benefits if they're cleared. And if they're not, there's there's a, a price to be paid potentially. Now, I'm a I am the leading member of the Victor Locken fan club and have and remain steadfast in my belief this man can go double double city this year. Um any any accusations of softness be damned. Let me ask you this. Outside of Aziz and and uh Reynolds, who is turning the most heads so far? I don't know if you're hearing about practice and what's happening out there of the newcomers or even maybe a, a player who was on the Bearcats last season that's just come back with immense improvements. Who is turning the most heads right now for the Bearcats basketball team? Yeah, I think two names that I've heard a, a decent amount are uh, Dan Skillings and Seamus, Seamus Lukosius, um, which I hope I'm saying his name correctly, the the Butler transfer. But I think Dan has has put a lot of work in and you know, is, is making strides. Um, and I think Seamus is a guy who they've, you know, he's not like a, he's not the same player as Landers, but I feel like they felt like they could bring this guy in who has positional flexibility, could be more of a scorer than he had been or had been asked to be at, at Butler and, you know, could, could do, could rebound, could, could guard on the perimeter. Um, and, and I, it seems like, I, you know, I, I think they feel good about what they've seen from, from him so far. I think the hope is once he gets on the floor that he will take a, a step up in terms of his scoring. And they're probably going to ask him to do a little bit more than he got asked to do before. Uh, but I would say that those, I think those two, I've, I've heard some good things about. Um, you said, I'm, I'm certainly not in it as, as deep as I have been in the past. Um, so I'm kind of interested to see as much as uh, some other people on the outside, what that looks like. Uh, but yeah, I think, Th- those are names that have popped up and you're you're totally right i think there's a huge gap um between if both those big guys get waivers if one of them gets a waiver and if neither of them do like i think even you know if one of them gets a waiver you're still feeling much much better than if neither of them do because you know i, I think victor has a ton of talent durability consistency have been an issue uh and so i think if you're leaning on him and Odie to be your only front court players they have the capability and talent um but you're gonna have to have a lot of things break your way and go right especially with Vic you're gonna have to see him put together a full season which just to be frank we have not seen him do yet from a from a health and consistency standpoint yeah there's 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 two reliable bigs with experience playing high level college basketball and that was in the American Athletic Conference I might add so it's uh you're right. There's just there's two, there's a ton of variance right now from an expectations and, and potential output standpoint. Josh Loeffler from Johns Hopkins left his head coaching position there to become an assistant coach on Wes Miller's staff. Can you give some insight into what that move like what what the reasoning behind that move was in terms of Wes Miller's perspective? I'm bringing this guy in and what's he bringing to the fold? Because I don't think he's involved in recruiting. No, so that this was part of like that rule change where there are now five bench assistants, but only three of them are on the road recruiting. So for Cincinnati, that's Chad Dollar, Andre Morgan, and Drew Adams, who was all you know, he was in a administ- more administrative role and was kind of moved into one of those bench assistants role. Leffler a lot of what he's doing is like the the scheduling and um I don't know, some of the more like not operational you know he, he's not a, an ops guy he is an assistant coach but you're basically bringing in a guy who has head coaching really good x's and o's experience is also handling some of those like scheduling and, and things like that but 
you know, maybe he didn't want to be out on the road recruiting as much, or maybe that's just not something that was an interest for him. But I think they felt like they could bring in someone who is a really good basketball mind, who's been a head coach, who understands, you know, those stresses in that process, uh, and also is is a good developer of talent and a good X's and O's guy. Um, and I think for him, he might probably just felt like uh, as much as, as he liked being a head coach, there's some benefits to, to being in the Big 12 and, and high major basketball. It kind of reminds me of what um, Sean Lewis from Kent State just did joining Colorado's staff, where it's like, I'm going to leave the MAC. I'm going to go become offensive coordinator in a, in a position that is a step down in terms of responsibility, but actually might be more visible. And I, you already saw the athletic do a massive write up on him uh, this season as the offensive coordinator. And he's probably going to be um, an even hotter head coaching candidate than he was as a, as a Mac coach for Kent state previously. So that's, that's kind of what I was hoping for, for Leffler was, can he be someone who's more hands-on in terms of what's happening on an X's and O's basis on the court? Because there were some shortcomings for the first couple of seasons under Wes Miller, where execution uh, left a lot to be desired. And I wonder if that's a place where he's coming in and, and being more impactful so that we're less reliant on isolation basketball, less reliant on settling for jump shots, especially in end of game situations. And that's certainly, you know, when he was hired or when, you know, it was talked about him getting started, that was the first thing you heard whenever you asked anybody like great basketball mind, great X's and O's guys. So I, I think that's definitely going to be a, a big part of his role and responsibility on this team. Well, Justin, when my computer decides to freeze me in an uncomfortable position, I, I take that as a sign that this podcast has run its course. I'm going to snap my computer in half eventually, and I might do it on camera uh, for clicks and views. But um, <laughs> what, for you moving forward, what, what would you like to share and, and encourage people to do in terms of supporting your work and following you as you continue to cover Big 12 football and I assume basketball season as well? Yeah, I'm, I'm headed to uh, Big 12 basketball men's basketball media days uh, out in kansas city this week so i'll be there for that uh you know if, if you have not subscribed to the athletic uh, always appreciate anyone that does that you can follow me on twitter at williams underscore justin and even though i'm not on the beat day to day um i certainly would ask that you know you support those cincinnati people who are here in town um but but also you know hopefully continue to to, to follow me and you know uh, any questions or anything you have like that don't hesitate to, to send them my way because I'm still keeping an eye on it and, and trying to pay as close attention as I possibly can. Justin, we appreciate your time here on the Cincy Slang and Bearcat podcast. Um, we'll leave it there, sir. Are, how many more wins is Bearcat's going to get this season? Good question. Good question. And let me look, let me pull up the schedule here. I don't, I don't want to belabor your frozen face, but. Um. <laughs> uh... So we're two and four at the moment and they play. So they have six more games, right? Yep. Yeah. I, I think this is a, a four win team. Um, I kind of had them as a, a four to five win team heading into the season. Um, I think if they'd have won Iowa state, I'd be more inclined to say five or six. So I'm going to, I'm going to say four wins. Um, and for their sake, I, I hope I'm wrong and, and they prove me wrong. You heard it there, folks. Two more wins. Enjoy them. <laughs> Justin, we'll be following along. Thanks again for coming on the podcast. We always appreciate it, and people love it. So thanks, sir, and have a great week. Go Bearcats.